0: Chapter 19 of The Vicar's Daughter This is a LibriVox recording All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org The Vicar's Daughter by George MacDonald Chapter 19 Part 1 Thereupon Miss Clare began I did not pretend to give her very words but I must tell her story as if she were telling it herself. I shall be as true as I can to the facts, and hope to catch something of the tone of the narrator as I go on. My mother died when I was very young, and I was left alone with my father, for I was his only child. He was a studious and thoughtful man. It may be the partiality of a daughter, I know, but I am not necessarily wrong in believing that diffidence in his own powers alone, prevented him from distinguishing himself. As it was, he supported himself and me by literary work of, I presume, a secondary order. He would spend all his mornings for many weeks in the library of the British Museum, reading and making notes, after which he would sit writing at home for as long or longer. I should have found it very dull during the former of these times had he not early discovered that I had some capacity for music, and provided for me what I now know to have been the best instruction to be had. His feeling alone had guided him right, for he was without musical knowledge. I believe he could not have found me a better teacher in all Europe. Her character was lovely, and her music the natural outcome of its harmony. But I must not forget it is about myself, I have to tell you i went to her then almost every day for a time but how long that was i can only guess it must have been several years i think else i could not have attained what proficiency i had when my sorrow came upon me what my father wrote i cannot tell how gladly would i now read the shortest sentence i knew to be his he never told me for what journals he wrote or even for what publishers i fancy it was work in which his brain was more interested than his heart at which he was always hoping to exchange for something more to his mind. After his death, I could discover scarcely a scrap of his writings, and not a hint to guide me to what he had written. I believe we went on living from hand to mouth, my father never getting so far ahead of the wolf to be able to pause and choose his way. But I was very happy, and would have been no whit less happy if he had explained our circumstances for that would have conveyed to me no hint of danger. Neither has any of the suffering I have had, at least any keen enough to be worth dwelling upon, sprung from personal privation, although I am not acquainted with hunger and cold. My happiest time was when my father asked me to play to him when he wrote, and I sat down with my old cabinet broadwood, the one you see there is as like I could find, and played anything and everything I liked. For somehow, I never forgot what I had once learned, while my father sat, as he said, like a mere extension of the instrument, operated upon, rather than listening, as he wrote. And then I thought, I cannot tell. I don't believe I thought at all. I only musicated. As a little pupil of mine once said to me, when, having found her sitting with her la- hands on her lap before the piano, I asked her what she was doing. I am only musicating, she answered. But the enjoyment was none the less that there was no conscious thought of it. Other branches he taught me himself, and I believe I got on very fairly for my age. We lived then in the neighborhood of the museum, where I was well known to all the people of the place, for I used often to go there. I would linger about looking at things, sometimes for hours before my father came to me. But he always came at the very last minute, he had said, and always found me at the appointed spot. I gained a great deal by thus haunting the museum, a great deal more than I was supposed at the time. One gain was that I knew perfectly where in the place any given sort of thing was to be found, if it were there at all. I had unconsciously learned something of classification. One afternoon I was waiting as usual, but my father did not come at the time appointed. I waited on and on till it grew dark, and the hour for closing arrived, by which time I was in great uneasiness, but I was forced to go home without him. I must hasten over this part of my history, for even yet I can scarcely bear to speak of it. I found that while I was waiting, he had been seized with some kind of fit in the reading room, and had been carried home, and I was alone in the world. The landlady, for we only rented rooms in the house, was very kind to me at least until she found that my father had left no money. He had then been only reading for a long time, and, when I looked back, I could see that he must have been short of money for some weeks at least. A few bills coming in, all our little effects, for the furniture was our own, were sold, without bringing sufficient to pay for them. The things went for less than half their value, in consequence, I believe, of that well known conspiracy of the brokers which they call knocking out. I was especially miserable at losing my father's books, which, although in ignorance, I greatly valued. More miserable even, I honestly think, than seeing my beloved piano carried off. When the sale was over and everything removed, I sat down on the floor amidst the dust and bits and paper and straw and cord without a single idea in my head as to what was to become of me, or what I was to do next. I didn't cry, that I am sure of, but I doubt if in all London there was a more wretched child than myself just then. The twilight was darkening down, the twilight of a November afternoon. Of course there was no fire in the grate, and I had eaten nothing that day, for although the landlady had offered me some dinner, and I had tried to please her by taking some, I found that I could not swallow, and had to leave it. While I sat thus on the floor, I heard her come into the room and someone with her, but I did not look round, and they, not seeing me, and thinking, I suppose, that I was in one of the other rooms, went on talking about me. All I afterwards remembered of their conversation was some severe reflections on my father, and the announcement of the decree that I must go to the workhouse. Though I knew nothing definite as to the import of this doom, it filled me with horror. The moment they left me alone to look for me, as I supposed, I got up, and, walking as softly as I could, glided down the stairs, and, unbonneted and unwrapped, ran from the house, half blind with terror. I had not gone farther than I fancy a few yards when I ran up against someone who laid hold of me and asked me gruffly what I meant by it. I knew the voice. It was that of an old Irish woman who did all the little chairing we wanted, for I kept the rooms tidy and the landlady cooked for us. As soon as she saw who it was, her tone changed, and then first I broke out in sobs and told her that I was running away because they were going to send me to the workhouse. She burst into a torrent of Irish indignation and assured me that such should never be my fate while she lived. I must go back home to the house with her, she said, and get my things, and then I should go home with her, until something better should t- turn up. I told her I would go with her anywhere, except into that house again, and she did not insist. But afterwards she went by herself and got my little wardrobe. In the meantime she led me away to a large house in the square, of which she took the key from her pocket to open the door. It looked to me such a huge place the largest house I had ever been in. But it was rather desolate, for, except in one little room below, where she had scarcely more than a bed and a chair, a slip of carpet and a frying-pan, there was not an article of furniture in the whole place. She had been put there when the last tenant left, to take care of the place, until another tenant should appear to turn her out. She had her house-room and a trifle a week, besides for her services beyond which she depended entirely on what she could make by charing. When she had no house to live in on the same terms, she took a room somewhere. Here I lived for several months, and was able to be of use, for as Miss Conan was bound to be there at certain times to show anyone over the house who brought an order from the agent, and this necessarily took up a good part of her working time, and as, moreover, I could open the door and walk about the place as well as another, she willingly left me in charge as often as she had a job elsewhere. On such occasions, however, I found it very dreary indeed, for few people called, and she would not unfrequently be absent the whole day. If I had had my piano, I should have cared little, but I had not a single book, except one. And what do you think that was? An odd volume of the Newgate Calendar. I need hardly say that it had not the effect on me which it is said to have on some of its students. It moved me indeed to the profoundest sympathy, not with the crimes of the malefactors, only with the malefactors themselves, and their mental conditions, after the deed was actually done. But it was with the fascination of a hopeless horror, making me feel almost as if I had committed every crime as I had perused its tale, that I regarded them. They were to me like living crimes. It was not until long afterwards that I was able to understand that a man's actions are not the man but may be separated from him, that this character is, even is not the man, but may be changed while he yet holds the same individuality. He is a man who is blind, though he now sees, whence it comes, that the deeds continuing his, all stain of him, may yet be washed out of him. I did not, I say, understand all this until afterwards, but I believe, odd as that it may seem, that volume of the new gay calendar threw down the first deposit of soil, from which afterwards sprung what grew to be almost a passion in me, for getting the people about me clean, a passion which might have done as much harm as good, if its companion, Patience, had not been sent me to guide and restrain it. In a word, I came at length to understand, in some measure, the last prayer of our Lord for those that crucified him. And the ground on which he begged from his father their forgiveness, that they knew not what they did. If the Newgate calendar was indeed the beginning of this course of education, I need not regret having lost my piano, and having that volume for a while as my only aid to reflection. My father had never talked much to me about religion, but when he did, it was with such evident awe in his spirit, and reverence in his demeanor, as had more effect on me, I am certain, from the very paucity of the words in which his meaning found utterance. Another thing which had still more influence upon me was that, waking one night after I had been asleep for some time, I saw him on his knees by my bedside. I did not move or speak for fear of disturbing him, and, indeed, such an awe came over me that it would have required a considerable effort of the will for any bodily movement whatsoever. When he lifted his head, I caught a glimpse of a pale, tearful face, and it is no wonder that the virtue of the sight should never have passed away. On Sundays we went to church in the morning, and, in the afternoon, in fine weather, went out for a walk, or, if it were raining or cold, I played to him till he fell asleep on the sofa. Then, in the evening, after tea, we had more music, some poetry, which we read alternately, and a chapter of the New Testament which he always read to me. I mention this to show you that I did not come all unprepared for the study of the new gay calendar. Still, I cannot think that under any circumstances it could have done an innocent child harm. Even familiarity with vice is not necessarily pollution. There cannot be many women of my age as familiar with it in every shape as I am, and I do not find that I grow to regard it with one atom less of absolute abhorrence, although I neither shudder at the mention of it nor turn with disgust from the person in whom it dwells. But the consolations of religion were not yet consciously mine. I had not yet begun to think of God in any relation to myself. The house was in an old square, built, I believe, in the reign of Queen Anne, which, although many of the houses were occupied by well to do people, had fallen far from its first high estate. And one would believe, to look at it from the outside, what a great place it was. The whole of the space behind it, corresponding to the small gardens of the other houses, was occupied by a large music room, under which was a low-pitched room of equal extent, while all under that were cellars, connected with a sunk story in front by a long vaulted passage, corresponding to a wooden gallery above, which formed a communication between the drawing-room floor and the music room. Most girls of my age, knowing that the vast empty spaces about them, would have been terrified at being left alone there, even in midday. But I was, I suppose, too miserable to be frightened. Even the horrible facts of the Newgate calendar did not thus affect me, not even when Mrs. Conan was later than usual, and the night came down, and I had to sit, perhaps for hours, in the dark, for she would not allow me to have a candle for fear of fire. But you would not wonder that I used to cry a good deal, although I did my best to hide the traces of it, because I knew it would annoy my kind old friend. She showed me a great deal of rough tenderness, which would not have been rough had not the natural grace of her Irish nature been injured by the contact of many years with the dull coarseness of the uneducated Saxon. You may be sure I learned to love her dearly. She shared everything with me in the way of eating, and would have shared also the tumbler of gin and water with which she generally ended the day, but something, I don't know what. I believe a f- simple physical dislike, made me refuse that altogether. One evening I had particular cause to remember, both for itself and because of something that followed many years after. I was in the drawing room on the first floor, a double room with folding doors and a small cabinet behind communicating with a back stair, for the stairs were double all through the house, adding much to the eeriness of the place as I look back upon it in my memory. I fear, in describing the place so minutely, I may have been rousing false expectations of an adventure, but I have reason for being rather minute, though it will not appear until afterwards. I have been looking out of the window all the afternoon upon the silent square, for, as it was no thoroughfare, it was only enlivened by the passing and returning now and then of a tradesman's cart, and, as it was winter, there were no children playing in the garden. It was a rainy afternoon. A gray cloud of fog and soot hung from the whole sky. About a score of yellow leaves yet quivered on the trees, and the statue of Queen Anne stood bleak and disconsolate among the bare branches. I am afraid I am getting long-winded, but somehow that afternoon seems burned into me in enamel. I gazed drearily without interest. I brooded over the past. I never at this time, so far as I remember, dreamed of looking forward. I had no hope. It never occurred to me that things might grow better, I was dull and wretched. I may just say here in passing that I think this experience is in a great measure what has enabled me to understand the peculiar misery of the poor in our large towns. They have no hope, no impulse to look forward, nothing to expect. They live but in the present, and the dreariness of that soon shapes the whole atmosphere of their spirits to its own likeness. Perhaps the first thing who would help them has to do is to aid the birth of some small vital hope in them that is better than a thousand gifts especially those of the ordinary kind which mostly do harm tending to keep them what they are a prey to present and importunate wants it began to grow dark and tired of standing i sat down upon the floor for there was nothing to sit upon besides there i still sat long after it was quite dark all at once a surge of self-pity arose in my heart. I burst out wailing and sobbing and cried aloud, God has forgotten me altogether. The fact was, I had had no dinner that day, for Mrs. Conan had expected to return long before, and the piece of bread she had given me, which was all that was in the house, I had eaten many hours ago. But I was not thinking of my dinner, though the want of it may have had to do with this burst of misery. What I was really thinking of was that I could do nothing for anybody. My little ambition had always been to be useful. I knew I was of some use to my father, for I kept the rooms tidy for him and dusted his pet books, oh so carefully, for they were like household gods to me. I had also played to him, and I knew he enjoyed that. He said so many times, and I had begun, though not long before he left me to think how I should be able to help him better by and by. For I saw that he worked very hard, so hard that it made him silent. And I knew that my music mistress made his livelihood, partly at least, by giving lessons. And I thought that I might, by and by, be able to give lessons too, and then Papa would not require to work so hard, for I too should bring some money to pay for what we wanted. But no, I was of use to nobody, I said, and not likely to become of any. I not even help poor Mrs. Conan, except by doing what a child might do just as well as I, for I did not earn a penny of our living. I only gave the poor old thing time to work harder, that I might eat up her earnings. What added to the misery was, that I had always thought of myself as a lady. For was not Papa a gentleman? Let him be ever so poor. Shillings and sovereigns in his pockets could not determine whether a man was a gentleman or not. And if he was a gentleman, his daughter must be a lady, but how could I be a lady if I was content to be a burden to the poor chairwoman, instead of earning my own living, and something besides with which to help her? For I had the notion, how it came I cannot tell, though I know well enough whence it came, that position depended on how much a person was able to help other people. And here I was, useless, worse than useless to anybody. Why did not God remember me, if it was only for my father's sake? He was worth something, if I was not. And I would be worth something, if only I had a chance. I am of no use, I cried. And God has forgotten me altogether. And I went on weeping and moaning in my great misery, until I fell fast asleep on the floor. I have no theory about dreams and visions, and I don't know what you, Mr. Walton, may think as to whether these ended with the first ages of the church— but surely, if one falls fast asleep without an idea in one's head, and a whole dismal world of misery in one's heart, and wakes up quiet and refreshed without the misery, and with an idea, there can be no great fanaticism in thinking that the change may have come from somewhere near where the miracles lie. In fact, that God may have had something, might I not say everything, to do with it? For my part, if I were to learn that he had no hand in this experience of mine, I couldn't help losing all interest in it, in wishing that I had died of the misery which it dispelled. Certainly, if it had a physical source, it wasn't that I was more comfortable, for I was hungrier than ever, and, you may well fancy, cold enough, having slept on the bare floor without anything to cover me on Christmas Eve, for Christmas Eve it was. No doubt my sleep had done me good, but I suspect the sleep came to quiet my mind for the reception of the new idea. End of chapter 20, Her Story, part 1.